Well, as Curtis mentioned, this is a very familiar psalm, and as we're in a series that we're trying to focus on what it means to dwell with the Lord, it was the last verse of this psalm that really drew my attention to it. I'm glad to be in a psalm that, since we've been in a couple that haven't been maybe as familiar, glad to be in something with you that you've probably heard before. You may have also heard of a book that was written. It was written about as long ago as I've been alive. It's by a man named Philip Keller. No relation to Tim, I don't believe. Um, But he wrote a book called A A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. This one, based on its styling, may be from the 70s. I'm not entirely positive. But we have two. And so if you are intrigued by anything that you hear through this psalm or through some of his quotes... And I do want to open with one of his quotes um, as we think about this. Uh, These will be out in the foyer. You're more than welcome to take them. If you ever return it, fantastic. If you don't, enjoy it. Pass it on to somebody else. Uh, We don't say that about all of our books, but, you know, this is is a good one. We can get some more if we need to. Listen to to, uh, one of the things that Philip Keller says about our good shepherd and our identity as sheep. He said, it is no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Our mass mind or mob instincts, our fears and timidity, our stubbornness and stupidity, our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. I see we don't have that quote behind me, and so maybe I should repeat some of those lines for you. Our mob instincts, fears, timidity, stubbornness, stupidity, perverse Habits are all parallels. In other words, you are not about to be complimented by this psalm. (laughs) When we think from Psalm 23 about our identity as shepherds, the shepherd is the one who is the hero. The sheep, not so much. So if we can accept that, we can also accept what else he says. He said, yet, despite these adverse characters, that was the only slide you wanted to put up, is that one? (laughs) Okay, very good. The, the tech booth rules the day, so. And by the way, uh, l- let me, before we even start, let's just thank God. We were having all these sound troubles before we sang, and Christine leaned over to me, and she said, just we were singing, this is just so nice. And we asked God for help. Let's, let's thank him. Huh? Father, we're grateful that you, ha- that you helped. We don't really always understand the problems that sneak into our wires, and yet you do, and um, you knew what we needed, and so you helped us. We're grateful. So, Father, we, um, we're eager for the rest of the service to similarly have your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Yet, despite these adverse characteristics, Christ chooses us, buys us, calls us by name, makes us his own, and delights in caring for us. And as we heard from John 10, not every shepherd does that. Many are hired and many are negligent. Many are abusive. As we'll hear in a couple weeks from Ezekiel chapter 37, many, in fact, who are hired to care for the sheep, destroy the sheep. And not our good shepherd. He chooses, buys, calls, makes us his own, and delights in caring for us. You see in your bulletin, the the main question that I want to be able to ask really comes from the third word of Psalm 23, which is the word is. 
because I want it to at least foster a question in our minds. I want it to stir us up and get us asking the question, is the Lord truly my shepherd? There's a number of ways to ask that question. If I encountered a relationship with him where he transformed me into a sheep from a goat, to use another scriptural analogy. Do I belong to his flock? Is there's, there's a fundamental group identity and personal identity kind of question behind it. Is the Lord truly your shepherd? But if you can answer yes to that, sort of in the theoretical sense, and you'd be able to say, objectively speaking, yes, I belong to his flock. I do have a relationship with him. Maybe the better way to ask that question is, does your soul truly believe that that governs, shepherds, directs your life? Because there are a number of things that would drive sheep away from the flock and away from the shepherd. They're addressed in the psalm. They're addressed in even more detail in these books that will, this book that will be available. But if we could ask and answer the question, is the Lord truly my shepherd? Isn't he? And we would be able to say then, yes, then what I want us to see in this psalm is what is it then that the Lord, who is my shepherd, does? And we're going to see three sort of contrasting or parallel kind of things. In other words, we want to say, if the Lord is truly my shepherd, then what is he doing? Or who is he to me? We're going to answer that question in three ways. The first is this. The Lord is my shepherd who lies me down and who leads me on. You hear that right out of the very beginning of the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, there's something about the phrasing of that that I think makes a big difference. Particularly if you are high energy, type A, some sort of, you know, portion of the Enneagram that would, or some personality test, whatever it is you use to identify yourself, if you're saying, I like to be the kind of person who gets stuff done, then you might understand why the shepherd needs to make you lie down. But it is a kindness of the Lord to lie us down. He makes me lie down. Listen Again, to uh, another thing that was said here. This is a long quote. I don't have this one for you, Jace. It says, the strange thing, sorry, Keller wrote, the, same, the strange thing about sheep is that because of their very makeup, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless they are free of all fear from predators and free from friction with others of their kind. Unless of flies and pests and free from hunger, they will not lie down. It is not generally recognized that many of the great sheep countries of the world are actually dry, semi-arid areas. Most breeds of sheep flourish best in this sort of terrain. They are susceptible to fewer hazards of health or parasites where the climate is dry. But in those same regions, it is neither natural nor common to find green pastures. For example, Palestine, where David wrote this psalm and kept his father's flocks, especially near Bethlehem, is a dry, brown, sunburned wasteland. Green pastures then did not happen just by chance. Green pastures were the product of tremendous labor, time, and skill in land use. Green pastures were the result of clearing rough, rocky land, of tearing out brush and root and stump, 
of deep plowing and careful soil preparation, of seeding, planting, special grains and legumes, of irrigating with water, husbanding with care, the crops of forage that would feed the flocks. Green pastures are essential to success with sheep. And he goes on. I'm not really sure when to end the quote because it's good. So plug for the book. Keep reading. What that means, though, is that ultimately connected to the pleasure of being made to lie down in a green pasture that the Lord has cultivated is that a flock can't stay in the same pasture for it to remain green. What has to happen for the people of God to be able to enjoy the rest that God has for them is that they would also be on the move. That is why a good shepherd both makes his sheep to lie down and he leads them on. Listen to the way that continues in verse 2. He leads me beside still waters. In verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What is happening in every one of those verses? God's people are on the move. Why? Because though he lies his people down, he also leads his people on. You know what's probably true about us? Given that we are fearful and timid and stubborn and stupid and perverse in habit. It's that more often than not, when the sheep are to be made to lie down, they probably want to be on the move. And when they are made to be led on, they probably want to stop. If Psalm 23 shows us anything, it's that we can't always trust our gut instinct about what we as sheep need the most. For more, read the book or read the psalm because it's kind of clear here too, isn't it? It's not just that he says, my sheep need to lie down. They're so sleepy. And so they get to lie down. They just ask, can I lie down here? And I say, sure, that'll work. No, we are made to lie down. And we are, if we are going to move on, we are led. We are led beside still waters. We are led through righteous paths. And we are led through the valley of the shadow of death. But as he leads us, the second thing we see about the shepherd, not just that he lies us down and leads us on, it's that in the process of doing that, he secondly provides for my needs and he protects my life. He leads me besides still waters. Why are the waters in need of being still? Because rushing waters are dangerous for sheep. If you've ever thought about the idea of going out and taking a swim, my guess is that wearing a heavy, full wool coat was not exactly your choice of bathing attire. That's because if you go around wearing a wool coat and you get that wool coat really wet, it's going to be really heavy and it's going to drag you down, which is why sheep need to be by still waters, not rushing waters. He leads me not just beside these still waters, but he leads me in paths 
of righteousness, which deviates a little bit from this sort of pastoral imagery, doesn't it? Still waters takes the analogy, and we know exactly what's happening. The sheep need to drink. They're brought into cool pools, still pools, where they can get something to drink. But sheep aren't what we would necessarily consider to be religious, moral, righteous, or unrighteous. Sheep are just sheep. And yet what God says, extending the analogy and kind of pressing it home, reminding us he's not just talking about sheep, he's talking about us, is that he leads us on the paths that are ultimately right. And if you think about the idea that our disposition is to sit when we ought to move, and probably to stray when we ought to stay on a path, then for we who are perverse, stupid, and stubborn, we need to remember our inclination is probably to follow a path that is less righteous than the one that the Lord would lead us on. It's not our inclination to our own safety or to our own good. It is the inclination of the shepherd that moves us on a path that makes sure we are heading towards things that are righteous. And ultimately, we see that God is providing our need, keeping us on a path that will lead to what is right and what is right for us, leading us beside waters that are not dangerous for us, but that will refresh us. He also then later, we read, prepares a table before me. But you know what I skipped there in verse 4? That when he leads us, And on a path that is right for us, sometimes that path leads us through a shadowy, death-filled valley. What David says is, even then, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will then fear no evil. Why? Because just as I could trust that you were leading me on paths that would refresh me, just as I could trust that you were leading me on paths that may be away from the pasture that I want to stay in, but they are the right paths because you are leading me somewhere else that will be for my good and for the good of everyone around me. Sometimes, even then, when you are on the path of providing for me, I am very aware of how much I need you to protect me. A valley marked by death is sometimes along the path. And David says, even then I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Not words we always think of with comfort. Your teddy bears and your embraces, they comfort me. Your snuggly, grassy meadows, they comfort me. The cool water that you gave me, that comforts me. But why is it that the rod and staff comfort me? It's because the sheep know that those are instruments used to protect the sheep from the dangers that would be in that very death-filled, dark valley. The valley of the shadow of death would have enemies, enemies around. And yet what's interesting is it's not just the fact of general protection. It's not as if we were going to take this and out of the, the, the pasture and bring it into our day and age in our country. It's not an advanced military that comforts me. 
It's not a thriving economy that comforts me. It's not general conditions of the country, or if we wanted to make things a lot more private, it's not that I'm doing well in school. It's not that I've got all the right friends. It's not that I've got peace in my home and that my job feels secure. It's none of those things that comfort me. It's not just rods and staffs all around. It is that this rod and this staff belong to him. In fact, verse 4 is a very transitional verse by way of pronouns. Before verse 4, everything is he, him. This is what he's doing. But in a place of danger, David's relationship with his shepherd turns from talking about him to talking to him. Even though I had to walk through that valley where I was threatened and in danger, I saw a staff and I saw a rod and I knew they belonged to you. And so I will fear no evil. Why? For he is with me. No. It is that you are with me. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In fact, I misquoted verse five to you before. I'm not sure if you recognize that. Because verse 5 doesn't say he prepares a table before me. Verse 5 comes after verse 4. So that when a table is being prepared, it's that you're doing it. In fact, it seems to be that in the structure of the psalm, truths about God become deeply personal for David, the perverse, stubborn, and stupid sheep. Because what happened in that valley makes God's care for him so much more personal. Wouldn't that be your testimony? Though the valley was cold, though the valley was dark, and though the valley is scary, isn't it in the valley when stuff you knew about God becomes the way that you know God? Isn't it that in your sin and rebellion, when you've tasted the strength of God's grace and your protection from the consequences of sin, you've been able to say, you're my shepherd, not just he is. Isn't it when others have done problematic and troubling and harmful and sinful things to you and they've gotten away with it and you wonder, is there any righteousness or justice in this world? And you see the way that God reminds you of his mercy to you and his ultimate plan to judge the world. And you remember, okay, even this, even I am under your mercy and even this is under your judgment. So it's not just that he's my shepherd anymore. It's now that you're my shepherd. Church, don't hate the valley. Don't hate the shadow. The greatest valley of the shadow of death is the place where our salvation was won. It was the place where every prophecy came true. It was the moment at which we understood how our good shepherd was laying down his life. It was the moment at which our good shepherd looked up into heaven and though he had addressed his father over and over and over as his father, the whole tide was reversed. It was at that moment when he had to look into the heavens and say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that we could make this transition when we're in a valley. So that we could stop talking about God and we could start talking to him. 
everything we love about Psalm 23, probably we think is in the grassy meadows and by, beside the still pools. But it's not the most powerful part of the psalm. The most powerful part of the psalm isn't just in him providing my needs. It's him protecting my life. And we see that in verse 5. If you're the one who's providing for me and providing even a table of what I need before me, you're doing it, according to verse 5, in the presence of my enemies. And in verse 5 is where we see the third thing that the Lord our shepherd does for us. He doesn't just lie us down and lead us on. He doesn't just provide and protect. He actually restrains the foes who would do us trouble. Listen to the way that Charles Spurgeon talks about this reality. He says the godly man has his enemies. He would not be like his Lord if he had not. And we're going to pause that for just a brief second because I think that is a profound point. We're being silly if we look over church history and think we could defend everything that Christians have ever done. You'd be silly if you'd look over your own personal history and think you could defend everything that you, as a Christian, have done. You've screwed up a lot. So has the church over the years. And lately, the idea of pointing out the mistakes of the church over the years has gained a lot of popularity. And at times, we really ought to embrace that. We ought to be able to say, Guys, the the hero of the story of the Bible is not the people of God, but the Savior of the people of God. The hero of my story is not that I'm so great. It's that God has saved one even like me. The message of evangelism isn't you can be like me. It's that you and I can be like Jesus. That's the message that we try to proclaim. And so when we see our weakness, it's okay, guys. We can easily admit the faults of the church. We can easily admit our own faults. And we can say... The godly man has enemies, and frankly, sometimes they're the kind of problems that we have because we've ignored the advice of Scripture. If you suffer because you are an idiot, don't blame God. It's kind of a summary, Darren's little version of a passage of Scripture. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, if you're not suffering because you were disobedient or you broke your word or you were a gossip and people caught you on it, hey, if you do Confess your sin. But don't blame that suffering on the fact that you're a Christian. Sorry, that suffering is because you're a sinner. But if we take that train of thought too far and we take the mindset that what the Christian ought to have is no enemies, what the Christian ought to have as he approaches the world is nothing but friends, then we're missing a whole nother vast swath of Scripture. Righteous people will be opposed because our righteous Lord was opposed. There have been enemies that we have, and as we saw in a previous psalm, because God has enemies. That's his first point, all right? So I'm not saying if you did something dumb and people are calling you out on it, don't blame God, okay? We're talking about enemies that have to do with because our being allied with God, the godly man has his enemies. He would not be like his Lord if he had not. Yet... See the quietude of the godly man in spite of and in the sight of his enemies. How refreshing is his calm bravery. When a soldier is in the presence of his enemies, if he eats at all, he snatches a hasty meal and away he hastens to the fight. But observe, you prepare a table 
Nothing is hurried. There is no confusion, no disturbance. The enemy is at the door, and yet God prepares a table, and the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were at peace. Oh, the peace which Jehovah gives to his people, even in the midst of the most trying circumstances. There's a reason they called that guy the Prince of Preachers. There's a reason that the, uh, you know, the, whatever, the court jester of preachers here needs to quote a guy like Spurgeon. How well said that is. The picture of Psalm 23 is of us in the presence of our enemies in verse 5, having a table prepared before us. And that table is part of then how we see that he not only restrains our foes, but he, in the language of verse 3, restores our souls. What is that table to do? It's to take those that are tired, take those that are afraid, reassure them that they're okay and they can stop and eat as he's on guard. If he restrains our foes, then what he can do is, verse 5, prepare a table before me, anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. You know how hard it is for us to enjoy God's presence when we're worried, when we're fearful, when we're shamed, and when we're guilty. We've got legit enemies coming against us. And the main one that we have has one main weapon, and it's to remind you of your past. It's to say to you, look at how you've soiled your clothes. How could you stand before the Lord like that? It's to say that if you've done this, how could you possibly belong to God? How could he possibly love you when you're as dirty and as damaged and as discarded as you feel? He doesn't have to invent things. He just has to distract us. He has to distract us with our weakness, with our guilt, and with our shame, and remind us of what we think we know, that those things are more powerful than grace, love, and care. It is no accident that God calls us sheep. The behavior of sheep and humans is similar in many ways. Our mass mind, our mob instincts, our fears and timidity, our stubbornness and stupidity, our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. Yet, despite these adverse characteristics, Christ chose you. Despite these adverse characteristics, Christ bought you. Despite all that, he has called you and made you his own. And despite everything that would accuse you, Christ delights in you. That is your good shepherd, flock. You belong to him. And the one who would lie to you and primarily seek to destroy you wants to tell you that everything about the good shepherd is a lie. And everything you are ashamed of is more powerful and more true. And he's a wicked, wicked enemy. He will get his due someday. But in the meantime, have faith and have courage. He was here to kill and to steal and to destroy. 
Jesus said the thief came for that purpose. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the good sheep. No. That's what we want to think sometimes. He came for the good ones, for the obedient ones, those who don't stray. But the truth is, he left the 99 for you. And he's glad he did. If this is your shepherd, if the Lord is your shepherd, your job going forward is to believe the truth about him and to forget what seems powerful about you. Because if you have it reversed, then you need to find somewhere else to go, someone else to follow. You need to find some other rod and staff to protect you. You need to find some other narrative to redeem you. And I'm here to tell you, you need no other. You have one good shepherd. And if the Lord is your shepherd, then you have no lack of anything, which is exactly what he means in verse one. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Matt Chandler, a pastor over a group called Acts 29, had, uh, had brain cancer. A long while ago, I followed a little bit of some of the updates he was giving. It was actually right around the time when I had Bell's palsy, so it was intriguing for me. I was grateful that what I had was a small nerve that was pinched, not brain cancer. But one of the updates that he gave over that time is, you know, I might survive these treatments and I might not. But that really doesn't matter. Here's what I can tell you is most true. My destiny is ever-increasing joy in God my Savior. If that's what we come away from Psalm 23 believing, that what the Lord has for you is everything that you need so that you won't be in want because you have before you ever increasing joy in God your Savior, then I can tell you this, where he settles you and where he is leading you will be for your good and it will follow you all the days of your life. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Coming back to our being home with God theme, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What great truth this is. Let's pray. Father, all we want is what you have proclaimed here. We want to be settled and nourished and refreshed. We want to be directed and corrected. We want to be led and protected and restored and nourished. I'm grateful that you haven't come to us and said, choose your champions, protect yourselves, and let me arm you as sheep for the battle. Thank you that what you've told us in this song is that ultimate protection and provision comes from you. Father, for those in this group who may be aware at this moment that they have heard about you for a long time, but they don't know you. They can declare the beginning of this psalm and they can't turn. Maybe the darkness has seemed too dark. 
The valley seemed too long. Death seemed too scary. Father, I pray that they would be able to, by the power of your spirit, see the good news that you have come to redeem them, that they can belong to you and they could turn and say that the Lord, you truly are my shepherd. Settle your people and send us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. When peace like a Thank